Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, our ophthalmology OCAPS and Border View podcast. This is your host, Ben Young. Andrew is still away, so this week we bring back Amanda Redfern. Thanks for having me back, Ben. Please keep in mind that these podcasts are for medical education only, not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figured reviewing for clinic, OCAPS, or boards is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we'll review a high-yield topic and flesh out the why and the how. Before we get started with Nystagmus Part 2, we have one quick edit for Nystagmus Part 1. We would like to clarify that the reversal of the OKN response in congenital nystagmus occurs with horizontal rotation in the OKN drum, not vertical. For example, in a normal OKN response, a patient focusing on the OKN drum rotating to the left would have a right beating nystagmus, with a slow phase following the stripes to the left, with quirk jerks back to the right. In a patient with a right-beating congenital nystagmus, however, the leftward rotation would elicit a left-beating nystagmus. Okay, and back to the normal episode. So, Ben, are you ready for part two of nystagmus? If you listened last time, you'll know that we reviewed the jerk nystagmuses as well as an introduction to nystagmus. This week, we're back to review... Pendular nystagmus. Pendular nystagmuses. And some other stuff, just for funsies. So, just as a review, what's the difference between jerk nystagmus and pendular nystagmus? A jerk nystagmus will have a fast phase, whereas a pendular nystagmus will just be slow phases. And what's the difference between nystagmus and saccadic movement problems? So, in order to be a nystagmus, you have to have a slow phase. But in saccadic intrusions, you just have just a fast phase or just a saccade. Right. So... Pendular is all slow, jerk is slow and fast, and saccadic movements are just fast. Say someone you see someone who clearly has a pendular nystagmus. What are some causes of acquired pendular nystagmus? Pendular nystagmus is actually really difficult to localize. You can see it in MS, but you can also see it in patients who are blind, secondary to optic nerve disease. So what's different about the movement in acquired pendular nystagmus compared to, say, something like gaze evoked nystagmus? So pendular nystagmus can be pretty cool looking because it can happen in any direction. It can be horizontal, vertical, torsional planes. And depending on if these are in phase, you could have a diagonal kind of nystagmus or even an elliptical or circular nystagmus if they're all out of phase. Hmm. And the eye movements can be conjugate or disconjugate. Let's say that we had a patient with a pendular nystagmus, but then they also had problems like they would keep making these funny noises and... So Ben, how good is your oral exam? That's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I... What? Well, what do you want to say, huh? Say just, it to my face. Just ask the patient to say ah. Say ah, Okay. Slash, just ask them to open their mouth. So you're saying if someone has an acquired pendular nystagmus, then you should open their mouth. Why do do we have to examine their mouth? Because they might have palatal myoclonus, which is an acquired oscillation of the palate. So have them open their mouth and just watch. Usually it's one hertz or one oscillation or contraction per second. And the unusual thing about this is it can be a delayed response to injury to the causative anatomic location, which is known either as a triangle of Mollaret or the Guillain-Mollaret triangle. 
to remind you what the components of Mollerace Triangle are, they're the red nucleus, the inferior olivary nucleus, or the cerebellar, cerebellar flocculus. Practically speaking, what you should do is go talk to your local neuroradiologist and ask them to look for inferior olivary hypertrophy or T2 hyperintensity within one or both of the inferior olives. Right, and that's another kind of unique thing is that it seems to be due to olivary hypertrophy as opposed to like, you know, atrophy from a stroke or some kind of ischemic insult. They seem to be hypertrophic and it tends to occur several years after the initial cause of lesion happens. We'll just go directly into the next nystagmus, which is seesaw nystagmus, another pendular nystagmus. Um, Does it take you back to your childhood? Yeah, dark times, dark times. Duh, <laughs> nystagmus. <laughs> For seesaw nystagmus, you can imagine your eyes are on, literally on a seesaw, fixed in place. So when one end goes down, the eye that goes down extorts because as it's going down, it kind of rotates outward. And the eye that goes up in towards because it's kind of rotating inwards. And it will alternate going back and forth in this pattern. So when you see this, of course, the first thing you think is, wow, that's pretty cool. But the second thing you th- should think of is... The localization of seesaw nystagmus. So the localization of this problem is can actually be pretty tidy. First, you assess whether or not they have vision loss, like a visual f- field defect or not. If they don't have a visual field defect, then it's likely in the brainstem or more specifically in the interstitial nucleus of Cajal, which is in the diencephalon. If they do have visual field changes, then where do you think would be, Amanda? In the paracellar region. So that would give you like a bitemporal hemianopsia. Right. Classically speaking, that's generally what will cause a C-sonostagmus. There are a few other known conditions that are known to cause C-sonostagmus. What are they, Amanda? So you could have vision loss secondary to retinitis pigmentosa, albinism, or optic nerve hypoplasia, and those could potentially cause a, a seesaw nystagmus. Right. But the high yield thing is, just as Amanda said, lesion in the paracella, like a craniopharyngeum or cellular mass or whatever, and it's also possible to have one in the brainstem. Okay. So as always, let's come back to children. If you see a child with a monocular, pendular, usually vertical nystagmus, is there anything to worry about? That sounds like a Hyman-Bilchowski phenomenon. So if you see this phenomenon, you've got to be worried about causes of some sort of monocular vision loss, especially if you're looking at a kid. So if the kid doesn't have some obvious reason for the monocular vision loss, then you want to get some neuroimaging to confirm or to see what might be going on. It can also present in adults this monocular vertical pendular nystagmus, so one eye bouncing up and down in the pendular movement. However, if an adult with long-standing poor vision in one eye that is, has a known cause, then you don't have to investigate that. If there is not an obvious etiology, then you still do neuroimaging to investigate whether there's you know, uh, something that is causing monocular vision loss, like an orbital mass, for example. Okay. Hey, Amanda. Yeah. Can we do a knock-knock joke? Okay. I love knock-knock jokes. Okay. I, I hate them, but knock-knock. Who's there? Psychotic intrusions. Psychotic intrusions. Psychotic intrusions, to remind you, are fast phase only movements, so they're not true nystagmuses. You can call them nystagmoid if you want to, but they're not. People are allowed to have a certain number of square wave. So one example of a psychotic intrusion is a square wave jerk. 
So a square wave jerk, you can think of, if you've seen like in uh, audio recordings, what a square wave look like, looks like, it's what it, what it sounds like you have a certain amplitude and then suddenly increases and then it suddenly decreases and suddenly increases and decreases. So a square wave jerk will essentially just be fast phase. So it'll be a quick movement, quick movement, quick movement, quick movement. So your typical square wave jerk is going to be small amplitude and actually kind of hard to see because it's usually less than two degrees of movement. And it's actually normal to have several of these, like four to six per minute, but it's pathologic to have more than 15 per minute. And that can be kind of a high yield thing to look at. 15, more than 15, you should think that there's a problem. As well as if they are large jerks, so much more noticeable, like if it's a 15, five to 15 degree movement, like a very noticeable movement, that's always pathological. So if you identify a square wave jerk that you think is pathologic, what should you be thinking of? There's always cerebellar disease. Uh, multiple sclerosis can also cause it generally by affecting the cerebellum. The big bugaboo, though, is progressive supranuclear palsy, which uh, can be important to diagnose early, because, as you know, it can eventually cause Parkinsonium-type dementia. What, what are the causes of psychotic intrusions, of increased psychotic intrusions? So... To boil down to the basic cause of the psychotic intrusions, it is an inhibition of the omnipause cells and an increased stimulation of birth cells. Which is uh, really relevant in another condition, which, you know, it's related. You can think of it as psychotomania as one term, or another term is opsoclonus, which definitely should be something that any pediatric eye provider should keep their eye out for. How would you describe it, Amanda? So it's, it's also known as dancing eyes. So involuntary, multidirectional eye movements with high frequency and large amplitude. And it has that same mechanism that Amanda just described where they have inhibition of the omnipause cells and stimulation of birth cells. So similar to opsoclonus is ocular flutter where you have bursts of involuntary, small amplitude, very high frequency horizontal eye movements. The reason I bring these up together is that both... Ocular flutter and opsoclonus can be seen in combination with myoclonus. And this brings us to a very important syndrome. Ben? Which is the paraneoplastic syndrome of neuroblastoma. It could be a presenting symptom of neuroblastoma. So the workup for neuroblastoma includes whole body imaging, urine catecholamines, uh, vanilla mandelic acid, uh, or VMA. You know, interesting factor, uh, fun fact, is to gauge the prognosis of neuroblastoma one prognostic indicator is how early it's caught, so whether it's caught before or after one year. But another positive prognostic indicator is if they actually have opsoclonus, then that's actually good for their prognosis if they have it. So it's thought to be perhaps an indication that there's this autoimmune reaction to the neuroblastoma, but I don't know if that's actually substantiated. Another interesting fact, although we commonly think of this in as related to neuroblastoma, it can actually be a perineoplastic syndrome associated with small cell lung cancer, breast cancer, or even ovarian cancer. So that's the big thing with opsoclonus. Think of it as a possible perineoplastic syndrome in both children and adults and treat that accordingly. So, okay, I, I saw this patient with saccades and I just couldn't figure it out. It wasn't the, any of the things we just talked about. What it looked like to me was, it was like a young person, they were otherwise healthy, so I think it might, you know, if we don't figure it out, we may, maybe we should do like a, like a perineoplastic workup, but these high-frequency conjugate oscillating horizontal eye movements, it was like really, really fast, they would show it to us, and it would occur for, you know, maybe 15, 20 seconds, 
and then uh, when they would look at us, it would go away. You know, it looked like they were really grimacing while it was happening. Some words or some kind of pain or something involved. What do you think that might be causing that, Amanda? Sounds like your patient was just faking it. What? Or best party trick. Maybe huh. for an eye party. Friend. That sounds like the best kind of party. It is. One can say it's an eyeball. <laughs> Get it? Eyeball and a party. No. Okay. Let's not. <laughs> so what you're telling me is that this patient actually had a voluntary flutter. Which turns out a decent percentage of normal people, around 8% of people, can do at will. Usually they have to converge to initiate that nystagmus. Um, you'll see some effort in their eyelids will flutter too, which is associated with the effort of the nystagmus. And if you ask them to look in a different direction, they won't be able to sustain it. So the timing is very important in this case because you want to distinguish it from ocular flutter, which can be related to some serious conditions. It's important to note that if the voluntary flutter or if the flutter lasts for 30 seconds or less, that would lead you to believe that it's probably just a voluntary flutter or if it has any of those other characteristics that Ben just mentioned. However, if they have persistent flutter, then you really got to worry that this is the real deal and look for possible causes of it. So that's it for the saccadic movements. We're just going to cover a couple other eye movement disorders that are related to nystagmus or can appear like nystagmus. So there's three we're going to talk about. The first is... Kind uh, of a misnomer, actually. A convergence retraction nystagmus. Why is it a misnomer? Because it's not a true nystagmus. The way it presents is you'll have a patient look up, which is the best way to view it, and their eyes will suddenly jerk medially towards the nose, both eyes, so it looks like convergence, but also the eyeball will retract into the socket. And this is because all of the extraocular muscles are contracting at once, which effectively pulls the eye inward. But because the medial rectus is the strongest of the extraocular muscles, you'll get that kind of convergence. I think a lot of us learned it as being caused by syphilis in med school. And I actually don't really know, understand why, because that's an extremely rare cause of it nowadays. What is the cause of convergence retraction nystagmus? Uh, it's a dorsal midbrain syndrome, but I definitely did not learn that about syphilis. I learned like, oh, really? yeah, I learned like, the, uh, the Argyle Robertson pupils. People, yeah. yeah, it's the prostitutes people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hooker, <laughs> hooker's eye or whatever, yeah. Accommodates but doesn't react. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> so clever. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. That's our note on convergence retraction nystagmus. We'll probably come back to cover dorsal midbrain syndrome in full in another episode. So then the next one we want to talk about is one of the only two causes of monocular oscillopsia. What are you referring to, Ben? Superior oblique myokimia. And because we, we won't go into much, too much more detail, the other um, difference for monocular oscillopsia is an INO, internuclear ophthalmoplegia. So superior oblique myokimia is kind of what it sounds like. It's high-frequency bursts of contraction of the superior oblique muscle. It can happen spontaneously. It can happen multiple times during the day, and it causes a vertical and torsional eye movement, as you'd expect, from a superior oblique, uh, essentially a spasm, which can give a monocular oscillopsia. 
but Amanda, you know, I always have trouble like seeing superior, you know, if it's a fourth nerve palsy or, or whatnot, seeing torsional eye movements. Do you have any tips on how we can observe this in the clinical setting? Yeah, one of the best ways to see it is using the slit lamp and then focusing on the vessels of the conch because that'll help you pick up that subtle torsion. And then what are some other symptoms besides monocular oscillopsia that a patient might complain of? So they might complain of diplopia, like vertical or torsional diplopia, also blurry vision or tremulous ocular sensation. So feeling that kind of jumping. Right. One other tip to look for fine nystagmuses in general is to take your direct ophthalmoscope and then look inside their eye. Because of the highly increased magnification given by direct ophthalmoscope, you can see very fine nystagmuses using that technique. So if you ever, if someone's ever complaining to you about something like oscillopsy and you don't see an obvious nystagmus, you can use that direct ophthalmoscope technique to, to test it out. So it's not really clear why people get this condition, but some postulate it's similar to hemifacial spasm, where you get compression of this time the cranial nerve 4 root by the superior cerebellar or posterior cerebral artery. Or some other people postulate that you get this condition either just before or during the recovery phase of a CN4 palsy of other cause. Right. And one other thing is sometimes it's easy to get mixed up between superior oblique myokemia and ocular neuromyotonia because they both can affect a single um, or cause a spasm of a single cranial nerve. So you can have a, for example, a fourth nerve ocular neuromyotomia. The difference is that superior oblique myokemia will cause an oscillopsia or um, will cause like a, a saccadic or nystagmus like movement where it's shaking essentially, whereas ocular neuromyotomia Tonia will cause a persistent contraction of that muscle. So they'll just get perhaps intermittent diplopia, but they won't get oscillopsia. So that's the difference. Myotonia causes persistent contraction, whereas myokemia causes bursts of contraction. Oh, and just on the topic of ocular neuromyotonia, that is typically caused by prior radiation, though there can be other causes as well that can cause irritation or can cause stimulation of the cranial nerve, which can be three, four, or six. Uh, there's just one more that we want to uh, discuss that is very rare, but that's what the boards or the OCAPs love. Actually, even step one, step two, love. I definitely remember that. So the one where we're <laughs> so the one we're referring to is oculomasticatory myorrhythmia. What you see is pendular vergence oscillations that occur with contractions of the masticatory muscles. And the important thing is to remember it's associated with Whipple's disease, which is caused by Trophorema whippley, whippley, whippley. So symptoms to think about in general are fever, diarrhea. They can have cognitive dysfunction, weight loss. They can actually have an inflammatory um, ocular symptoms as well. So definitely do a good thorough dilated eye exam. And you should check for lymphadenopathy. We refer you to your friendly local internal medicine podcast to learn about more of the manifestations of Whipple's disease. But this could be one of the early symptoms or the presenting symptom of Whipple's disease. So that's why it's important for the ophthalmologist to know. And you can die from Whipple's disease. So it's also important for that reason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we did it. We covered the nystagmus and nystagmoid conditions. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number four. Also, our flashcards are released on our website at eyes4ears 
com with the number four. It also really helps us if you rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to your podcasts. And that's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you.